You're listening to the Mindful Leadership Podcast with your host, Jason Cooper, the sales training coach. In these episodes, I shall be speaking to some of the world's most dynamic leaders to find out exactly what they do, how they work in this ever-changing world. We'll be discussing sales, sales leadership, business, coaching, and the mind. And in this very special episode, we'll be speaking to Owen Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy these podcasts, please rate them five star if you like them and please share with your friends. And we're live to the world. Good afternoon, good evening, good morning, wherever you are in the world and whatever time zone you're in, you're very welcome to my Mindful Leadership Podcast. I'm your host. I'm a sales strategist, sales coach. I help sales team deliver better results. So this series is all about insightful leadership. It's all about gifted leaders who employ brilliant and unusual strategies as an effect. So today I'm really, really quite happy. I, I said three times is influence, isn't it? So three times uh, is a, a wonderful thing to do. So my guest today, without further ado, is... You can see him actually. He's Owen Fitzpatrick. He's sitting there comfortably in New York City, there. And welcome. Thanks very much, Jason. Good to be here. A little bit of a blurb about yourself, because uh, for the people that don't know you, I'm sure everyone does know you by now. But for the people that don't know you, he's a globe-trotting psychologist. If I'm looking over there, so I'm reading my notes. He's an international best-selling author thought leader, area leadership and influence, owner shared on stage with the likes of Sir Richard Branson, Seth Goodin, Jean-Claude Van Damme and Dr. Richard Bandler. He's written, uh, I, I get confused, how many books you've written? Is it eight or nine? Eight, eight. Well, eight. yeah, eight. Uh, look, I know you've got a couple in process as well uh, and you're, uh, you're doing lots and lots of things. So I know you've travelled over 100 countries, you uh, taught in 30 countries around the world. Uh, look, there's lots and lots. Look, you could probably articulate it slightly better than me, I hope. Uh, hopefully, I haven't ballsed it up for you. But I, I give you a little bit of an insight. So, again, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, no, look, mate, everything you said was 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 good, was, uh, was true. It's always easier for someone else to say nice things about me than me to say nice things about me because it can, yeah, it can screw with my attempt to try to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, so Owen, um, tell me something uh, uh, about you. Um, I want to take you a little bit back uh, and and bring you fast forward to where you are today. You don't have to go to all the pieces. So, sort of how you started out um, all those many many years ago. Uh, I know you're a little bit younger than me, but uh, a couple of years ago, and just fast forward to where we are today, and a little bit of a journey. Sure. So, Jason, I suppose I'm a as you mentioned, sort of a psychologist, I tend to travel around the world working with different people, especially organizations, training them to be more effective in terms of influence, storytelling, communication. Um, and that's sort of where I'm at right now in terms of I do a lot of speech, speeches and talks and motivational stuff. But the journey began, I suppose, for me in my teenage years. I struggled a lot when I was a teenager with depression and was suicidal for a while. And I went through a very tough time. I I'm very sensitive, as I suppose, as a, as a person and, and a very sensitive kid I was. And I would react um, very deeply and 
you know, powerfully to uh, what, what was happening. And with your hormones as well there as a kid, it was, yeah. it was a tough place. I had a great family, still do. But um, it was just a struggle. And so from there, I began to learn about hypnosis. And I began to study hypnosis because, to me, hypnosis showed me an opportunity where I could, like, change my mind and change the way I felt. And, uh, and so I started studying there. And I was, like, 13 years old. You know, I once, I once did a, uh, a hypnotic. So I started learning hypnosis, started doing shows. Okay. And I did a hypnotic stage show when I was, like, I must have been about 14 years old. How did that work out for you? Which? How did that work out for you? Yeah, so I was 14 and I went in and there was this, there was a group of people. Um, they were all like, it was someone's birthday party, right? I think it was like someone's <laughs> 13th birthday party or something ridiculous. And uh, there was maybe, I don't know, maybe 40 kids at it. And there was a few parents at it. And the parish priest was there as well. Oh, no. <laughs> And I did the hypnosis show, you know, and at one point um, uh, I, I had a routine whereby whenever the phone would ring, right, they would uh, immediately think that the, the shoe of the person next to them was a, um, was a, was a telephone. Mm -hmm. And uh, unfortunately for me, so I had that, you know, I was going to, and then I was going to call the phone at some point, but the phone went off during the show. And then they all just fell on each other and started grabbing each other's shoes. And, uh, and, and there was a few injuries there. So uh, and then there was the parish priest. And then they started worrying that hypnosis had made it like they, they were they were just really worried. About it. I managed to save the day I, I would take each of them and uh, work with them and help them to be able to, um, you know, relax and calm down. And on the inside, I didn't know what was going on. But on the outside, I was always able to, you know, be composed and calm. And so I helped them to be able to do that. Um, and then it was all fine. And they all were like, oh, that was great, blah, blah, blah. But it was just, it was my first sort of in public showing. And, you know, as I said, there was all these parents looking at me like as if to say like I was, you know, a devil. And there was an actual priest there, you know, probably to perform the exorcism just in case. <laughs> so, so hypnosis was something I got into. Started studying hypnosis, uh, like uh, professionally, like you know, when I was still a teenager, I had to get special permission to be in the course. Um, okay. During that course, I met Brian Colbert, uh, and the two of us hit it off. Very good friends. Brian's an incredible guy, and so myself and Brian, you know, we stayed in touch. I studied psychology and got into NLP, the field of neurolinguistic programming, um, mm -hmm. quite well. Got to know Richard. Um, and then myself and Brian started up the Irish Institute of NLP. We did that for a number of years. Um, we worked very well together. You know, as I said, he's one of the top people out there. Um, and then I had a TV show in Ireland for a couple of years called Not Enough Hours on RTE. And mm -hmm. then after that, I traveled a lot around the world, teaching, delivering courses in Japan and Colombia and Pakistan and, you know, you name it. And then and Italy. And, uh, and then I ended up, uh, a few years ago, getting really interested in, um, you know, um, screenwriting and, and acting. And, and also I was like, you know, wanted a fresh challenge. And so I applied for a green card as an artist um, for the States to move over. And uh, I moved over there the beginning of last year. And so that is where I'm at. And then COVID-19, as soon as I arrived, I think I broke New York. New I York think you broke New York, and then I, I arrived, and next thing, COVID-19 happened. But last year, 
the second half of last year, I broke my arm. So the second half of last year, I was like functioning pretty much with one arm. And then I, I got over that and then I got into the new year and I said, okay, 2020, this is the year. And then COVID-19, I'm like going, all right. I don't know who's been worse, me on New York or New York on me, but I still love it here. So, uh, you know, I'm just getting on with it. And you're just back there now after a, a very short visit to, to Ireland and uh, yeah. seeing everyone, which is good, actually. It's, it must be reassuring to see your family and friends and all of that. You know, the, the, that's the one thing. Like, I went, I flew home. I did two weeks in quarantine. So, uh, you know, and I, I, I was prepared to do that and uh, was pr productive, actually. And then at the end of that two weeks, then I got to see and hang out with my parents, see my friends and stuff. But I missed my parents a lot. You know, it was tough being away mm -hmm. for that long. It was really tough. Uh, I was on my own in an apartment in Brooklyn and New York was in a really bad shape. If you remember, like mm -hmm. unbelievable, you know, tragedy here in particular, like obviously around the world, but New York was hit so hard by it. it was, and so yeah. being alone in New York for that many months, you know, and, being away from my parents who are I'm obviously worried about and concerned about and care about massively. That was tough. So it was amazing to see them. They'd be the most important things to me in the world. So yeah, mm -hmm. great to be home. And and now I'm back ready to, ready to get on with the, uh, take it over the world as they say, you know, I've uh, just a question for you actually is um, like, I know you've been uh, before COVID and all of that, you were traveling absolutely everywhere around the world um, I know you're in uh, South America and then you're in uh, Eastern Europe and then you're all over the place. So describe to me exactly what you do on sort of uh, when you present to an audience and then you you give them whatever it might be, your story mastery course or whatever it might be. Well, describe in detail about that. So when I get hired, let's say, to teach in Japan, for example, um, it's usually on a certain topic around psychology, around change, around mm -hmm. helping people to change, or around changing their minds, or around influence or so. So I would do like a three-day course on, let's say, story. And mm -hmm. uh, I would teach them not just about how to tell stories, but how to use stories to help people to change the way they think or feel. So some businesses are interested. So when I go and work in the corporate arena, um, a lot of businesses are interested in you know, storytelling for leaders. So how yeah. leaders can use stories to uh, take data, our data, and, and make it easier for people to understand um, and and under uh, and, and really compute on. So um, that's obviously an essential skill, especially if you're in more technical fields. If you're a CTO or your CFO, a lot of times mm -hmm. I'll do some exact coaching where I'm helping people to again transform the data into um, you know a story form. And so that's one one way to do it. Another approach or angle um, would be helping people to be able to improve um, the way in which they communicate externally. So from a business point of view, teaching people how to not just sell, but also market better um, and communicate better with, with the general population. And again, a lot of that is down to the powerful use of stories, but also yeah. influence in general. So my main area of expertise would be on influence how we influence other people and how we influence ourselves. And in a nutshell, that's what I teach people on. So when I go into, when I, when I fly over to Japan, sometimes it might be a group of people who just want to be able to learn one of those things, or sometimes it's specifically coaches or therapists who want a more advanced understanding of some skill sets they can use that helps them mm -hmm. be able to, you know, um, change minds and change behaviors. And so that would be the kind of, 
thing that I would. Uh, uh, for the audio guests up there, I'm just pointing above uh, Owen's head at changing minds. Uh, so a bit of a plug there as well. So. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I interrupted you there, but I know you uh, teach leaders around the world uh, on the, what you've learned and what you've read and you put that into the workshop. But I'm interested to see where you're going to take this now because of all the what's happened over the last five months. And there's going to be massive change in how the dynamics of a leader and leadership is going to be perceived now because there's going to be a lot more stress and a lot more anxiety based around what is happening and what is going to happen. We're, we're still riding this wave and it hasn't properly crashed down yet. But how do you think you're going to cope with this? Uh, well, I mean, to an extent, I've already... Uh, cope with a lot of it like uh, most of my work obviously my job involves speaking to large audiences around the world so yeah. flying and speaking in public and they're like the first two things to go with something like this so i lost a massive amount of work over the space of you know two three weeks my entire mm -hmm. year was taken up um and so i had to adapt like we all had to and to be quite honest which it's worked out quite well because a lot of people are reaching out because they know that they need to be able to cope with and handle the challenges that they face. And that's what I pretty much specialize in. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've been doing a lot of virtual sessions for organizations, some on storytelling and influence, a lot on leadership, um, a lot on um, resilience and what, what we term anti-fragility or the ability to be able to become stronger as a result of uh, crises. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've been doing an awful lot of different types of virtual sessions uh, because mm -hmm. I, I think this also gives businesses a chance to realize this is an opportunity, uh, you know, which where to a degree it's easier to, for them to be able to fit into an everyday working environment. It's easier to fit in a virtual setting. You mm -hmm. do need someone who can engage audiences. You need someone who uh, is very skilled at being able to bring everyone and involve everyone and make everyone feel, you know, glued to the screen but if you can do that there's a huge opportunity there for businesses to be able to learn and to train their staff um in a lot of uh, really useful skills and that's kind of why i think i'm, I'm you've know, been getting quite a lot of requests and i've been doing quite a lot of work over the past few months is because nowadays more than ever we're we're about to enter a, a rat well we have have entered a radically different world yes. and in that radically different world um, we often emphasize the importance of technology and you know AI and all those wonderful things, which is great. Mm -hmm. But one of the most important skill sets that you cannot delegate to a computer is things like decision making, is creative thinking, is problem solving, is communication, is mm -hmm. relationship management. All of those are the bits that are becoming even more important in this world that we we live in and work on. In order for you to communicate effectively with people in your organization, you need to build trust. You need to make sure trust is not eroded because it can be when you're only work, working virtual. So that's why now it's more, more important than ever to be more effective at influence and to be able to have the right mindset to be able to deal with whatever's going on. And so to me, I, I, I see and believe that it's actually going to be more important than ever, the score of skill sets that we bring to the table. Um, and I think companies are realizing that now, and that's why it's it's so popular. Yeah, I, I was actually going to ask you, because uh, 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 like, I, I do believe that trust 
and being yourself, uh, uh, we say authenticity, which is a wonderful word, but I, I, we know it's been thrown around here, there and everywhere, but being yourself is probably the most authentic you can ever be. Like yourself, you're, you're extremely authentic, which is wonderful. What sort of strategies could you give back to people in like a, a, as, a, as a couple of golden nuggets? On, on authenticity? Yeah, well, on authenticity, but on, on leadership and how they can give back the sort of back to their staff, back to their the people that work with them. Well, I, th I think there's a few things. First of all, with authenticity, there's no real strategy to be authentic because it's almost like authenticity is the natural state. The problem isn't that people don't know how to be that way. The problem is that people already are kind of almost push they push themselves into this mentality that says i have to appear like a certain person i mean we all do that to a degree you know if you were to look at your you know your raw inner self and all of your urges and all things oh, then, don't do that. yeah definitely don't do that um so so instead what you need to do is you need to recognize that we all put on some sort of frame but yeah you know like i was talking to the other day like um someone a friend of mine was listening to my podcast and she said you know she was enjoying it and whatever. And she goes, you're like the exact same person in real life as you are in your podcast. That's mm -hmm. not exactly true, but it, it's close enough and vice versa with yourself. And I think as a leader, one of the reasons why authenticity is so critical is because if people feel that you're showing them the real you, then that's even more important to a degree than even when you, you know, even the things that come out of your mouth, like the difference between trust and authenticity to a degree, authenticity can make a person more persuasive than trust uh, being trustable. So people will almost forgive a politician who lies as long as they are authentic about who they are. And there's yeah. lots of examples about that. But if, oh, yeah. you, if as a leader, if you can be authentic and let people see the real you, and that means not play games, not hide things, not try to manipulate a person's perception, then that's, uh, you know, that's the way to do it. The same time, let's say for example authentically you're you know you don't develop or you don't demonstrate enough leadership qualities well in that case you need to work on yourself yeah. so for example if if you're a leader and you're not very polite or nice or likable then you might need to work on that uh, those um qualities you don't fake it you don't put on a, a fake smile because that'll just scare people <laughs> uh, you know but but you need to make it so that you're working on well, the people who do like you in your life, what do they like? Is it that you've got a good sense of humor? Like, for example, me, I'm not like a super always friendly, always nice, always sweet person. I, it's not in my nature. So if I'm like over the top happy and smiley, then it's not going to fit for me. I know people that it does fit for, but it doesn't fit for me. And so um, what I need to do is figure out, well, the friends that I do have, what do they like? And so, you know, maybe, you know, your sense of humor and you let, you, you use that more in the mm -hmm. workplace. But I think leaders need to be able to bring themselves to it because that shows a sort of a connection um, with, with the people that work for them. And then in terms of other strategies, it really is about thinking about how your team feels, not just you know how they're performing or what they're doing. It's checking in with them versus checking on them. Yeah, it's yeah. an important distinction from a mindset perspective. Because so often we think about, oh, I need to check on that person to make sure that they're doing what they're doing. That's micromanaging. Whereas checking in is recognizing people are struggling. You know, uh, some people that work for you are alone. Uh, they they work alone. 
they're they're disconnected from a lot of people now because of the uh, circumstance so it's more important than ever that we reach out and we connect with these people and we make sure that everyone is doing okay. And some people like to be left alone. That's fine. But, you know, it's important for you as a leader to be thinking about how people are feeling. Because when people feel good and they feel empowered and they feel motivated and enthusiastic and they feel supported, they're going to perform infinitely better than if they feel like, you know, they're out there and they don't even know whether or not, you know, and, and, and the only emails you ever email them are like, where, where's that report or, you know, where's my cup of tea? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, like I joke about that, but who, who is someone that you admire in a sort of a business context as a, as a leader who's out there? I know we have the obvious Richard Branson's and stuff like that, but who, who else would you admire that's out there? Maybe someone that you've worked with, but you just give me the, the sort of the characteristics that they have and like uh, how, how they come across in a certain way. I know you discussed a lot of that, but someone that you maybe admire in, in that sort of sense. Well, to be honest, there's not one business person that stands out to me as someone that I admire because I admire a lot of business people. But here's what I do, Jason. And this is a little different than what most people will say. Yeah. I don't admire people per se, especially in this context. I admire people, right, yeah. for who they are. But I admire mainly qualities, right? So um, I would I would admire, you know, if, if you ask me in terms of the person I admire the most, I look up to my dad, right? Um, and you know, as a as a person, as an all round person, he's like my hero. But if you look at um, actual people in business that I admire, it's more so qualities. And so I've worked with a lot of people over the years. I've worked with billionaires that have like you know 40, 50 companies, um, coached them and worked with them. And there's a lot that I admire, but there's a lot of other qualities I wouldn't admire in in, in people I've worked with. And so I would say. The qualities that I admire, as opposed to the people that I admire, would be the qualities of um, someone who's very skillful at being able to influence other people and get buy-in, uh, people who tend to uh, be very emotionally intelligent and to be able to empathize with people and really understand where they're coming from, creative thinkers, um, you know, people who are able to think differently than everybody else, uh, strategic thinkers, People are able to plan and build, uh, you know, uh, like to me, great strategic thinkers are like great architects. They're able to see what isn't there yeah. and, and and build it. And instead of doing it over location, they do it over time, which I think is a phenomenal skill. Um, good decision makers. Um, so often we can experience the imposter syndrome where we feel like, you know, we, we don't know what's going on and we're like blagging it or we're like, you know, just guessing at what works. And I think courage, uh, the, the, the courage to be able to, you know, turn around and go, right, I'm not 100% sure, but I know that this situation needs decisiveness and needs this, and we're going to figure this out, and, and that kind of thing. Steve Jobs, for example, had lots of great qualities, but he also had horrible qualities. Yeah, he did. His leadership style. So, you know, I, I, I appreciate some of it. Now, some might argue, yeah, but he could only be that way if he was like that. And I don't necessarily agree. But I also don't think any of us need to be perfect. I think what we need to do is we need to figure out what do our team needs. That's why, yeah. like, areas like, you know, servant leadership or situation leadership are extremely popular. It's because people recognize that you're not an effective leader if you're trying to force everyone to work your way. You need yeah. to 
lead people, which means you need to know the people you're leading, which means you will need to understand what their needs are and, uh, and how to communicate best with them. So I think the kind of qualities that I see in people, um, you know, that, that, that I appreciate, there's a lot of qualities Richard Bandler has that I very much uh, value. Um, mm -hmm. Working with Brian for so many years, he's an incredible, I mean, he's, he's incredible at so many different things. So he's so many wonderful qualities. Um, and again, lots of business people have great qualities and get great results. But with those qualities, you know, like me, I, I think I have some very good qualities, but I've also some not so good qualities. So if someone was saying, oh, you know, I'm, I, I, I look up to Owen, I, I wouldn't say that's a smart option. You know, I don't think I'm someone to look up to. I think some of the stuff I've done is to is to respect and some of the skills I have is something to aspire to or some of the qualities I have perhaps. But mm -hmm. I, I kind of really have seen so many times we it's almost like Jason, we dismiss people because they make one mistake, or we immediately say, because that person isn't this, therefore mm -hmm. I no longer like them. And I think we fail to see a lot of the good in a person because they don't have one skill set. You know, like if you meet me in two different forms, like let's say you meet me at a, a, a conference where I'm, I'm speaking versus you meet me, um, you know, yeah, at a party, for instance, or you meet me in a gardening center, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, you, yeah, I'll normally bump into you in the garden center. Well, you see, you'll never will because I never <laughs> go there. But my point is, is that, if you if you meet a person in different contexts, you see a different yeah. side of them, and so it's so important to recognize that and not to just assume because that person has this one skill. We tend to categorize everyone with that one skill in a certain way. Um, if they don't believe the same political beliefs as us, if they don't, you know, uh, if they're not into religion, the same religion as us, or if they if they are into religion and we're not, or you know if they're not from the same country or background, like we have all these different ways we categorize people as if they, they're either this person or they're not, as opposed to looking at the qualities. When I went to North Korea, I found lots of people that were very similar to me, even though a totally different experience of life, but because I was looking for what we had in common as opposed to what, you know, what we don't. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. If I may jump on a soapbox temporarily one of the biggest problems in the world today is that we're so focused on how we're different than everyone else we're not thinking about our similarities we're not thinking what we have in common and to me that's one of the uh worst um trends that seems to be happening in society today so that was probably a long answer to your very short question i can't remember what the question was now so uh, but really leadership and qualities i think oh yes yes i i was going to say uh, i remember going into Laos. And I was down the Meekum River and stopped off in um, a village. But the, the, the biggest connection is uh, alcohol. And it really is. Uh, I was sitting around with all these uh, guys and they gave me, I can't remember, they had lizards in it and snakes and stuff like that. And we all sat around and I didn't understand what they were saying. They didn't understand what, but we we're having a laugh and it was fun. All the barriers went down and it was, we were communicating, but we, we weren't verbalizing the communication it was it was but we were getting on and that's breaking down the barriers and seeing people for who they are and not what they what you pretend they think they are in your heads but just getting on with people 
So I like that. It, it's like it's like the quote on The Simpsons, you know, alcohol. That what is it he said? It's like the the cause and solution to most of life's problems. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, obviously alcohol, you know, can be a horrific thing that brings a lot of fucking terrible things to people. But at the same time, as you mentioned, sometimes it you know acts as a sort of a social lubricant that connects people because most most places on the planet. You know, people people will drink, and uh, you know, it's it's finding anything we have in common. You know, uh, absolutely. I was gonna the, the, the thing that I was gonna. I know you've written uh, eight books, and you got two or three or five in in process. I don't know how many you got in going. But the question is, I, I was watching a program a couple of weeks ago, and give you a little bit of a description. There was uh, a, a place in Wales where a lot of bands went. Uh, Led Zeppelin went there in the sort of 70s and they produced the best album that they did. And then Queen went there in sort of the early 80s and they produced uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and they did all of this sort of stuff. And then in the 90s, uh, Oasis and uh, and then there was a whole load of other really successful bands. But they went to this uh, farm and it had a studio in there. And they were just left up to their own devices to just get on with it. And they did all sorts. And But they produced wonderful creative work. And they had the time and space to do this. So the question back to you is, what is your creative space? And how do you use it? And when do you use it? And what do you do when you do do it? So I suppose a lot of the books that I write, I'm writing with people. So, you know, I, I have certain amounts that I will do and I give myself deadlines in order to be able to get that done. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I struggle to be able to carve out, you know, a week here, two weeks there to just focus on a book because there's so many other balls in the air that I'm trying to juggle. And yeah. so uh, because of that, what I'll tend to do is allocate, I organize time. So for example, most days of the week, I'll wake up and as soon as I wake up, I go straight into writing mode and I do, you know, a few hours writing before I check my email, before I uh, go on social media, uh, before I respond to anything or do anything. My first thing in the morning is writing for a couple hours and that is fresh. It means nothing else is distracting me and it means that I can, you know, be quite creative and be quite prolific in that way. And that's one of the, one of the ways that I, tend to get a lot done. Um, that's one thing I do. Another thing I do is I give myself rewards. So I give myself targets of how many words I want to get done. And mm -hmm. I give myself reward for that. Um, you know, and that reward could be watching a show, uh, an episode of a show that I want to see, or could be, you know, make myself a nice smoothie or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. I tend to try to, when I'm writing a book, one of the distractions can be you know, you 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 try to search for something online, and before you know, you're down a rabbit hole. You know, and you know, it's been half an hour, and you're on the on the internet looking at all sorts of different articles that are related loosely to what you initially started looking for. Yeah. So what I do is I tend to have whenever I'm looking for something, I just write it, I make a note of it, and then I have like specific search time where I give myself a deadline of like 20 minutes, half an hour, and mm -hmm. in that 20 minutes, half an hour. I have to find the answers to all of the different questions that I had, uh, which are things I need to research on online as a result of that. And so with all of that, that's kind of the main process. I find I'm pretty productive on airplanes because there is no Wi-Fi. Yeah, yeah. Well, there is Wi-Fi, but, yeah, yeah. but yeah. 
but I, I don't even use it. I literally, when I'm on the plane, that's it. I'm just the only, no one can get to me. I'm just 100% on it. And uh, I get as much work done then as I can. Um, and so, you know, to me, you get the idea for the book, you figure out what chapters need to be on it. And once all the main decisions strategically are made, then it's a case of getting your ass into the chair and writing as much as you can. And that's kind of, they're my little hacks of, of how I do it and what mm -hmm. can work for me. I don't really, I mean, the problem is if you buy into this notion that says uh, you go to the cabin in the woods and you do all your writing there, for some people that works, not for everyone, but also can put you under pressure that you then go there and you like feel under pressure to write your best stuff. Where, you know, sometimes you can write just as well, you know, in your apartment, the apartment you're in all day, every day. Um, and, uh, and, and you just do it at a delegated time. The most important thing is to write on a regular basis, not just to, 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 you know, wait for like a few months until you can carve out a week and then say, Oh, I'm going to write a book in a week. Yeah. You know, you also are informed by different things. Like I learn stuff every day. I'm a consumer of information. So I'm learning new insights and ideas all the time. And, you know, a lot of that makes it into informing my thinking on, on the books that I'm working on. So how do you take distractions? Like my son just walking in and then uh, uh, adding a little bit more value back to this podcast and you've given some wonderful insights. How, how do you deal with that? Well, the, the reality is, first of all, it's, you know, if, if you incorporate it, it's not a distraction. Yeah. Um, but if you're, you know, like Nir Eyal talks about, you know, anything that takes you away from the goal that you're trying to achieve in that moment is, you know, a distraction. So mm -hmm. if, if I'm searching for, um, you know, if I'm trying to write a certain amount, I'm giving myself targets. And because I have a target, it's kind of the way the, the, um, Pomodoro technique works. So this is a story about a guy who like has a, a timer um, mm -hmm. shaped in, in the shape of a tomato and he sets it and it's 25 minutes long um, and it buzzes after 25 minutes. And then after five minutes of a break, he then sets it again. And so the way it works is this technique was found that you give yourself 25 minute sprints where mm -hmm. you, you, just focus and you're not allowed to do anything else but focus on this for 25 minutes, then get five minutes off in 25 minutes. And it's manageable for people. People feel they can do it. With me, I don't necessarily use that technique, but what I do do is give myself, okay, this is the amount of time that I have. Uh, a reasonable expectation would be, would be for me to get this amount of words done. Mm -hmm. And then I go after that. And then anytime I veer off, I go, look, I'll get to that once, once I get my goal achieved then I can go and do the research. I'm gonna skip that part until I do the research and go back to it. But really the secret to it, uh, Jason, is batching. You do everything yeah. in one go. You don't like go here and then do that and then let yourself go here. You go, right, batching. I'm gonna focus just on this right now. This is the only thing I'm gonna do right now. And you set it up ahead of time like that. That's awesome. That's incredible. Now, I, I'm going to borrow one of your questions, but I'm going to rephrase it in a slightly different way. Uh, a movie I was watching the other day, uh, the other week, uh, and so there's lots of cops in there and there were some baddies. And the baddies were flogging these pills, not like Limitless, uh, but they were flogging these pills. But what these pills do, they uh, once you swallow them, it 
goes with your DNA and that DNA gives you five minutes of something like uh, invisibility, superpower. No, no, before you do it, I, I know the film you're referring to. I haven't watched it yet, so don't spoil anything in the middle of the I, end. At the end, they all die. But no, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's... I hope they don't. If they do, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to find you. It's uh, yeah, it's a good it's a good movie to watch for the the five minutes. But I, I like the idea of five minutes. But it gives you something, uh, but you don't know what it is until you actually have it. So, what would that actually be for you? And you got five minutes, and you have that wonderful superpower of whatever it might be, but you don't know what it would be when you have it. What would you imagine it might be? What do I imagine it might be, or what would I want it to be? Well, uh, answer both questions. If if it was a uh, if it was um if I wanted it to be it would probably be the ability to be able to change minds because I mean to a degree that's what I do I help people to be able to do that but there's certain times when the stakes are high where people are so convinced of their own perspective um, that a lot of you know what I would do is I would go to all the heads of the political parties and I would get them not not to change their philosophies but just get them to be able to change their minds on how they see the other side so that they can sort of see how can we work together. And they, and, and maybe even I would, if, if it was a power, I don't know how these powers work, but I would give them the ability. That would even be better. You get, give everybody in the world this ability to see from their, let's say inverted commas, enemy point of view or way of thinking. Yeah. Just give them that sample, that five minutes where they can feel that feeling where they can go, what would it be like to feel what the other person is feeling, seeing the world through their eyes. Because I think it would really enhance their ability to communicate. So that's what I would say, even though that's kind of cheating, I would say give everybody that superpower. In terms of what I would probably get, I mean, it depends on it depends on the, the screenplay, really. But if, if in most cases, if it's a, if you get a superpower, it could be one of two main things normally people will write in. One will be, it will give you an extended ability to do what you do already. And the other would be, it will give you, so it takes your strengths and it maxi maximizes it. The other will be, it takes your weaknesses and helps you improve it. So mm. I think Limitless in many ways, although it was strengths as well, a large part of that was him being really good at the stuff he normally wasn't good at. Yeah. And so if it was that, well... I, I couldn't answer. If, if they were taking a weakness of mine and making me good at it, I can't even imagine because I've got so many weaknesses and so many areas that I'm terrible, so many things I'm terrible at, so many areas of life I'm useless. Um, but if it was the strength point, it probably would be that. It, it would be the ability to, it'd probably be the ability to read minds. Not that I can, but that I'm, I'm pretty good at being able to understand what people are thinking or pe people are feeling. And so it would probably be full out being able to read people's minds. But in terms of, yeah, if it was one of those superpowers that compensates for your weak or improves your weakness, I don't know where they would start. They'd be looking at me going, this guy's bad at so many things. Where are we going to pull? You know, they would be... Uh, about, uh, bouncing. So when you fall over, you bounce back up. So you wouldn't hurt your arm anymore. Boom. Um, <laughs> no, no. I, I look... Well, what Jason's referring to is I fell while I was running in, in Brooklyn and I tripped and fell and broke my arm and I had to fly that night and teach a course, um, which I still did. But, you, did. you know, I was I was in a bad way. And, you know, it happens. You, you fall, you know, like 
No one's ever not, you know, very few people. Oh, by the way, sorry. Have you ever had an injury, Jason? I know I've had plenty of injuries. Uh, I'm just recovering from uh, a knee injury. How did you get that? Um, by running up uh, trails and mountains, and oh. uh, I I did that. I tore my calf as well uh, in the within the same two weeks. Maybe maybe the superpower could could help you be able to keep uh, uphill, um, and that could be your superpower to keep you loose, so that you know you 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 fail to injure yourself. Yeah, I, I would actually like to have that because I'm so competitive. I'm always looking at the person in front of me going, how can I catch them? What do I need to do to catch them? What? And that's I, was doing the thing. I think that's a great, you know, like to me, people always ask me, you know, when I did the, mar I did the marathon years ago, they said, um, and you, I'm telling you, you'd be so much better a runner than me, me, Jason. But when, when I did the marathon years ago, people would say, oh, why did you do it? I like, I gave myself a time. I could yeah. not have run the marathon if I didn't have a target time. And I know lots of people that don't need it. But for me, just the way I like to do things, I like to push myself in that way. So I'm on, I'm on your side of that, buddy. I think that's the best way to run is when you're trying to catch people or you're trying to succeed, you know. I'm not very good at uphill. But downhill, because I've got long legs, I can just catch anyone. I'm, I'm pretty good at that way. But uphill, I'm, I'm, I'm completely screwed like well, I was on Wednesday. I'm, I'm bad uphill and I'm also bad downhill. But I'm also bad flat. So you know, I'm okay. kind of, I'm I'm flexible in my in my badness. Well, that's good actually. So uh, at least you you got three ways of doing it badly. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Owen, I really appreciate uh, the time that you've given me today. It's been really educational, inspirational, fun, interactive. Uh, and look, I wish you every success for the future and whatever you've done. How did, can people find more about you? Usually I was very, how, how, where can people find you? But we know you're in New York. Thanks very much, Jason. Just first of all, thank you very much for inviting us on. It's great to have you and great to have you on board the, the stuff. And um, uh, I, I'm, I'm, this podcast, I've heard a few of the episodes sounding great. And so I think it's, it's really exciting times for you. For all listeners, please make sure if you can, you rate. Uh, and review um, Jason's podcast, give him testimonials, um, you know, because it's really important to support people that are doing great work like that. So that's first of all to you, Jason. Um, you. And in terms of me, website is ownfitzpatry.com, also changeyourmindsacademy.com. Um, but the main place, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, usual stuff. But the main place would be my, my uh, podcast, which is Changing Minds with Owen Fitzpatrick. The website would be changeyourmindspodcast.com. And uh, hopefully you'll in, you'll enjoy um, some of the topics that I talk about and all that sort of stuff as well. I really appreciate that. And today you've been listening to the Mindful Leadership Podcast. This interview is actually and will be available probably mid-September. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms like that on the podcast uh, sphere out there. So please like, please subscribe. If you like it, please tune into this plus many more. And I appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks, Paige. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of the Mindful Leadership Podcast with your host, Jason Cooper. If you like this, please give it a five-star rating. And if you need to contact me or would like to contact me, you can speak on jcooper at jasoncooper.ie. Appreciate that. 